There's an old adage that goes something like, if you can't explain what you do to a five-year-old, then you don't truly understand it yourself. In other words, how simply can you describe your job? I've always found journalism appealing in this sense, because at the end of the day, a journalist is simply keeping people informed. They just tell people what's going on. With the advent of the printing press about 400 years ago, journalism really took off. I mean, after that, you could really get your message out there. But now in this post-internet era, not only journalists, but everyone can get their message out there several times a day. Sometimes dozens. Too many, to be honest. Although journalism has gone through tremendous flux in the last 25 years, with online publications like BuzzFeed, Vice, and the Huffington Post coming to the arena, some industry titans that have existed for over 150 years are still producing quality reporting in this very different climate. One of the major outlets that has survived this internet gauntlet and is one of the first names in reporting is the New York Times. I can think of no better equipped person to comment on the role of a journalist than Ontario-born expat, longtime journalist, and current staff editor for the New York Times International Opinion page, Tamsin Bergman. Because of Tamsin, both directly and indirectly, articles with important subjects ranging from climate change to American politics and racial and gender inequality can see the light of day. But one does not simply get a job at the New York Times. In Tamsin's case, reporting for a multitude of Canadian and international outlets, ranging from the CBC to Vice to the Canadian press, can build your experience on the way there. But Tamsin hasn't neglected the role of formal education either, so she got herself a few degrees with her name on them. Most recently, a Master of Journalism from the University of Hong Kong. So if you've ever wondered how someone gets inspired to write a particular story, how someone can put their life on the line to get a message out there, or even why a Canadian with a sought-after stable job might pick up and move to Hong Kong, then keep listening, because this is Mike Syme with How To Be a Journalist. Tamsin is joining me today via Skype as she's sitting in her apartment over 12,000 kilometers away in Hong Kong. So thanks very much for joining me. I'm happy to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, how many hours difference did we say that we're apart? I think it's an 11 hour difference right now. So I just had some coffee and um, got out of the shower. And I've gone through my entire work day. I've gone to my yoga class and now we're together. Happy to be here. Great. Thanks, Tamsin. Well, I think a good place to start is recognizing that journalism is such an old profession. But, I mean, even in my lifetime, it's seen some pretty drastic changes. From your perspective, what are some of the major changes that you've experienced since you first began your career? Well, you know, I mean, journalists are attacked everywhere these days. So that's something that's changed since I started. I got into journalism for the good that, it, that I could do with it. And I never expected that um, over time... I would be treated disrespectfully and told that I'm fake news. <laughs> that was unexpected. There are conspiracy theorists out there who just don't believe anything that journalists write and who just um, have a negative, a very negative view and that came before Trump started going off on fake news. I was experiencing that in Vancouver at parties, and I didn't understand it. And I think that my belief is that sometimes journalists, in fact, all people, we are fallible. So sometimes we make errors the vast majority of the time, it's not that we are concocting some insane story to pass our own agendas. It's just that we didn't know enough to push it further or to, or to get that right information, or we just didn't have enough time. So most of the time, it's very human reasons when a report is incomplete or there is some kind of inaccuracy and it's not a big conspiracy. 
So I, I really had no idea. I mean, I would have expected that reporters got their fair share of, you know, strongly worded emails for having unpopular opinions, but I wouldn't have thought that you'd be told your work is just fake. Now we're in an entirely new era of polarization and journalists are being attacked far more than they ever were um, in countries around the world where they have far fewer protections than those of us from more working in the West. And that is a huge, uh, just, a, it's a travesty. I've met so many journalists who are risking their lives in this part of the world who I respect so much. And to know that they are bearing the brunt of this, um, that regimes are now perpetuating these myths and and taking the institution of journalism down when all those journalists are trying to do is to make their country better. I am v largely shielded from it, but well, I know I many people who are not. It is absolutely terrifying to live in that climate. Yeah. I can tell you that one of the reasons why I'm doing this, Tamsin, is to get everyone to understand what a day in the life of a journalist is like a bit better. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm thinking with that in mind that I should probably be telling everyone out there, just go give your local reporter a hug. That's beautiful. Please give your local reporter a hug. But shifting from the unexpected things about reporting to the stereotypical things, what about the image that people tend to have about reporters from movies and TV where they're just constantly running around chasing stories? Like, what is that like for your work schedule? And does it actually happen? When I started at the Canadian Press, I learned that my bureau chief, at least the lore, said that she would only ask her reporters to do what she also would do. And this bureau chief, the lore said, had skipped her own wedding shower. <laughs> so it kind of sets precedent. Indeed it does. And when you are in your early 20s starting out and you have this precedent, um, if you want to succeed, at least what looks like success, what looked like success back then was jump when they say jump. And however many hoops you can get through kind of shows how far you can get in, in this business. So you must have weeks every now and then where nothing out of the ordinary occurs. The run-of-the-mill days, I will wake up to 14, 20, 40 emails from overnight from New York. And so throughout my career, I have... I've been in countless situations where I have had to be flexible. And so when you are flexible on a regular basis to your career, I think that that's part of recognizing that it is more than a career. I think you've hit on the point of how I have recognized that journalism is my identity. So as you said a second ago, flexibility is key in your line of work. That's correct. You have to be responsive and you have to always have a bit of an idea of what's going on so that way you can jump into the thick of things. I can tell you about telephone in the middle of the night and being told, follow the fireball in the sky. Um, I have been told to drive towards a hurricane I have been in places where they've taught me how to prepare a go bag. A go bag being what you need to have if something like violence or an attack pops off and you don't have time to prepare, you know, to root through your drawers and get ready to go. You need to have that bag. So this ability that you have to be flexible and dynamic and responsive, has that been something that's always been with you? Or have you just developed that skill since becoming a journalist? If I look at my mother yeah. as an 
example and a role model. My mom, we always make jokes that she has ants in her pants. I do take after her. So one of the traits that pretty much anybody who's ever met me through my entire life, whether in journalism or not, will say that I have is energy. And that energy has probably been part one of the many essential ingredients to my personal success. Back in those days, did you have any kind of journalistic hints to you at all? Were your parents looking at you and being like, wow, she likes giving stories at the dinner table, that kind of stuff? I loved reading and writing. I would finish my work before the other kids in like grades one, two, and I would just pull out a book and read. So I was always into reading and writing and the escape that it brought me. And I loved the element of creation. What about any pivotal moments where you look back and you think, okay, it was that time when the spark was lit for me? So grade nine in Canada, I'm 14 years old. And our grade nine English teacher asks us to write an essay for Young People's Press. They had a competition. We all had to write the essay as an assignment and submit it. And I remember being really frustrated because for some reason I was having a brain block. So I went and talked to my mom. She said something to me that we've all heard. It is a cliche, but it worked. She said, Tamson, write from the heart. I went back upstairs. I sat down at my desk. I wrote my essay, and several weeks later, I got a telephone call out of the blue. I didn't even know what they were saying to me on the phone. I like, what, what are you, why, why are you speaking to me? What are you saying to me? Well, I had won first place in the contest. And by winning first place, I had my essay published in the Toronto Star. And so that, you know, is, is a success. You got that acknowledgement. Did that kind of set off this little bit of a, ooh, that, that felt good. I want to I wanna get that feeling again. You know, I think that is what it did. Because after that, I said, okay, where, where and how else can I get published? There was an independent young women's magazine. So I ended up, I think, having one or two articles published in there. Uh, I was part of Girl Guides and there was a magazine that I wrote a story for as well. And then I think in, in later years in high school, I ended up working on a student newspaper and putting that together. And that was all before I went off to university. Okay. So by the time you got to the end of high school, it sounds like you clearly knew you wanted to be in journalism. So was it as simple as saying, okay, Tamsin, I want to be a journalist. Where can I study journalism? No. Actually, I looked at the schools in Ontario, and two of them that I was interested in had a journalism program or a media program. And then the third one just seemed to be the best school, and that was Queen's. And I decided to go to the school that looked like the best school rather than direct myself into one of those programs. Well, then, okay. So if you didn't go to a school for journalism, at the very least, I assume you got involved with the university paper? My second year at Queen's, I did approach the paper. And frankly, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. So I applied for a job as a copy editor. It was the one thing that I thought I could reasonably attempt to apply for. I saw it then as the smallest role and therefore the m most possible. And so by getting myself in the room with everybody else, that's what made the difference. And to this day, that kind of has been my strategy. Getting myself in the room means that I get myself next to the other people who do know what they're doing, who for whatever reason do understand what's going on and have the confidence, but I can learn from them. And as soon as I start learning from them, I start realizing that it's not nearly as, it is hard, but it's 
it is something I can do. So being involved with the student paper, what did that do for you? Like, how did you see yourself as a student? Were you more into your classes or were you more into the newspaper? After getting into the Queen's Journal in my second year as a copy editor and then starting to write articles on the side, my next year, my third year, I became an assistant news editor and my last year I became news editor. And so by the time I was well into that, I started saying to people, I'm not a student who's also a journalist on the side. I'm a journalist who's a student on the side. If you're a student just on the side, did you find it difficult at all to balance your actual degree, like the thing you're actually paying for, alongside of being a student reporter? Frankly, my undergrad degree was easier than what I did in high school because I did two degrees in high school and I did the international baccalaureate program and I squeezed five years into four to avoid being part of the double cohort in Ontario. So I was staying up all night in high school to get good grades, but I may be an outlier because I do put in the work. You do sound like a high achiever. I am. Like, because I, I like getting gold stars because it feels good. Is the uh, pursuit of these gold stars one of the reasons you think you've been successful? There's a lot of reasons that people succeed in this world. I do believe that I put in the work to get there genuinely, but luck does play a massive role in all of our lives. And that randomness is something that I don't want to take credit for, frankly. I did not know that Queen's was going to have, I'm going to say it, the best student newspaper in Canada. And it was because of the people at the Queen's Journal that I worked with that I learned everything. So I, I saw on your LinkedIn profile that eventually you did start to get longer-term full-time positions after all of these internships. So I saw your longest position was at a place called the Canadian Press. How long did you work there for? Uh, between seven and eight years. Again, from looking at the responsibilities of that position, it didn't quite look like something you got straight out of university. So how did you find yourself at the Canadian Press? Right. So, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I had my first internship, paid internship at the Kingston Whig Standard, which was thanks to Queens. Then I had an internship at the Waterloo Region Record. Then I went over to the Hamilton Spectator. Then I had a quick jaunt through uh, the CBC, got hired by the Toronto Star for a year. And it was after a year with the Star when I graduated from Ryerson University that I was hired by the Canadian press again for an internship because at least back in the day, my day, um, that's how you got into the business was you just did internship after internship to build up your portfolio and your experience until it became a permanent hire. And I was permanently hired by CP after doing a year with them. And they moved me from Toronto to Vancouver because they needed a reporter there. I'll assume that I'm not the only one who wasn't entirely sure uh, what the Canadian press is. I do know that it's not a newspaper or a magazine, and I know that they do news reporting. But beyond that, uh, Tamsin, can you tell me what is the Canadian press exactly? The Canadian press is Canada's national news service. It celebrated its 100th birthday in oh, wow. 2017. It is a service that provides news to multiple platforms and clients across the country. And those platforms include newspapers, televisions, radio stations, online publications, some photo services. We cover all the top news and we distribute it to media across the country that pays for our service 
And they do that because most media, if they're not a national publication, don't have the staff or, or the resources to cover all the news that's happening around the country. But if they want to be able to give a well-rounded news report, they need to get that news somehow. And so they supplement their original reporting and their local reporting with the newswire, which had which does still have bureaus all across the country. And I usually tell um, people who, yeah, again, don't know what a, what a newswire is, um, that we, the Canadian press, is the sister to the Associated Press. That tends to have a little more profile. But other news services would be Reuters and Bloomberg and Agence France Press. Um, there's, there's several around the world that, that uh, would be our cousins. And, and so to me, someone who's not intimately familiar with the industry, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity for any aspiring journalist. Is that fair to say? It is. I have interviewed or been in scrums with everybody from Justin Trudeau to Mikhail Gorbachev. I had covered Prince Charles when he came to town and Narendra Modi when he came to town. I've covered Andrew Lloyd Webber and a Sesame Street character named Abby Kadabi. I covered a riot. I covered a fireball in the sky. I covered teacher strikes and garbage strikes and the variety of stories that I was able to cover from politics to murder trials has pretty much taught me about the world, certainly about Canada. Now I'm learning about the world by being out here and that's what I wanted. But I would say I learned more about what it means to be a Canadian and what and what our population in Canada, who our people are. I've learned all of that by being able to talk to actual Canadians from all spheres of life. That has been my life's education. And so it's an it was an unbelievable opportunity. But now you're in Hong Kong which again, I assume didn't happen overnight. Can you walk me through some of the events that led you to living and working in Asia? In 2013, I took a leave for a year because I was trying to cement a relationship with this dude in Japan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to Japan, and uh, after one month... Even though I had gotten myself a bicycle and a bank account and had put my entire life on hold in Canada, after one month, we break up. And I go, okay, it was pretty epic for me to pick up and move to Japan. I said, well, what's more epic than that? In four days, I decided that I was going to backpack around Asia for the rest of my time. Okay. That changed everything. So besides being envious of such a long and amazing trip, I can imagine like a lot of the trips I've experienced with and had great times on, you start getting closer and closer to the end date and you get filled with this kind of... Uh... Dread. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when the trip did finish, did you go straight back to your home in Vancouver? I, I went back first to Toronto and spent uh, a little bit of time with my family. And then I went back and picked up my apartment and picked up my life that I just put on hold. And even though it was lovely to be back, I was pretty depressed. I was pretty depressed. And I suddenly had to go back to a place and stay there rather than moving around every single day, practically. And there was the novelty of moving around wasn't stimulating my brain anymore. And there was a great big teacher's strike, which compared to interviewing rebels in northern Myanmar, um, <laughs> it just didn't seem like the same... It didn't, it didn't carry the same weight, even though it did matter. Of course it mattered. Very, very early on to my return, I started trying to figure out how to cope with 
returning. And there was this one word that kept repeating in my mind, and it was complacent. If I stay here, will I be complacent? So when I got back there, I had this word echoing in my head, and I set out immediately to figure out, first of all, how can I create my next big adventure? Well, it took me three years to come up with a plan and to follow through. And that's, that is how I am here today because I, I created a new dream. It was my new dream. So when I was a child and a teenager, I, I had this idea, I want to become a journalist. And then I had this idea like, oh, I want to be like an independent woman in a cool city and, a, and making a difference in the world by putting out my expressions and creating good art, you know, through journalism. And that was my goal from the, the first few phases of my life. That was the one goal. And I achieved that goal. And I don't know if if or what, like how it would have changed if I hadn't had that leap into the unknown that I embraced and took me on an entirely different path because that changed everything for me. The backpacking trip taught me all these things about myself that I had no idea and suddenly gave me a new idea. And when I got back, I had a new dream. When you did get back, and you realized that something wasn't sitting right with you, did you know that you were going to move right back to Asia again? Or was it some other thing on your mind? How did you go about coming to that conclusion? So at the beginning, I knew that I wanted more. I knew that I didn't like being back, that I didn't, I was just having trouble connecting with people. Um, and that hurt. So I knew that I had to fix that problem. And I started small by trying to first come up with just, the next big adventure, I basically created like a plan A through J. Like plan A is send my resume to employers in Asia and somebody hires me. Plan B is to liquidate my savings and go to a tiny newspaper in Cambodia, right? I mean, that's maybe plan J, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I had this whole list and I also had another list of action items that I thought would help me get there, like create a website with my entire portfolio on it to show, you know, that I was employable and that I had foreign reporting skills. I just kept doing things to keep pushing me forward. But after I missed my first deadline of escaping by six months, and then it came on a year, like I was basically struggling within myself going, okay, why am I not pulling the trigger on any of these? And why, what is holding me back? Finally, I was perusing a website uh, for international journalism opportunities. And I saw a little course and the course was being run by Hong Kong university. And then I looked at their website and I saw that it was staffed by international journalists of great stature. And I said, you know what, maybe this is what I'm going to have to do. Okay. So you're in Vancouver and you know at this point that you want to get back to Asia. And you think that this university in Hong Kong can get you through the door, kind of a safe way to build some new bridges. The way you just put it is, is perfect because that's ultimately what I did. And I consider what I did to have been actually a hack on myself. The thing is that at the beginning of getting back, I went to mentors and I asked them, what do you suggest? And the, one of my mentors, she said, I didn't need to get any more schooling. And I didn't want any more schooling. I already, I already had two degrees. So... I didn't follow that path until it dawned on me that maybe by connecting with a reputable organization on the ground, I would no longer be burning my bridges in Canada because I was off to get more education. I would be doing something that my parents approved of because they always wanted me to get a master's. I would have the education I would get out of it in the very least if it didn't amount to anything. You know, there, I suddenly started realizing that 
that this program, if I got accepted, would check a lot of boxes, even though it wasn't what I wanted to do and not what most people do. I couldn't push through certain boundaries that I had put up, certain fears, but this allowed me to do it. Tamsin, as you're someone who I can comfortably assess as having both plenty of formal education and work experience, for you, has education largely been what you would call a means to an end, or are you doing any of these degrees as an end of themselves? Yeah, they, you're right. I love learning, but the pieces of paper have always been just that for me. Well, uh, before this interview, I wouldn't have said that journalists were particularly entrepreneurial simply because they work for larger organizations, or at least they tend to. But with your experience, it's making me think that it's a bit more complex than that. Do you think your career fits better into the camp of standard employment, or is it a little bit more entrepreneurial? My career is actually a hybrid of the two, I think, because I have pushed forward my career from the very beginning. I have gone out and sought opportunities and then within every position that became a formal position I then had to seek out stories of my own I would then bring to the publication um, to show that I could bring forward more value than simply having the stories assigned but I have worked in formal positions almost my entire career. The Times is my seventh newsroom. Six others were in Canada. And while most of those were paid, a few of them were internships, they all had the structure of a traditional newsroom. I think that to be a good reporter, you have to have an entrepreneurial spirit. So then is one type more satisfying than the other? Like, is it better to be working on a story that you initiate versus one that you're delegated? For me, satisfaction is a very existential thing. I believe that I'm the one who makes meaning in my life, and so I have to be the one who engineers it, who creates the opportunities, who creates the luck, who recognizes something important out there that needs to be said, somebody's voice that needs to be shared. All of those elements are up to the journalist. I, But I really can't imagine that it would be very fulfilling to be only working on stories that someone else is giving to you. The most fulfilling work is when I connect with the subject matter, when I connect with the people, yeah. and I believe that my reporting or my editing is making some kind of a difference. Speaking of differences, besides moving to Hong Kong in the first place, now you're working for one of the most influential media outlets in the whole world. Not to shortchange your previous experience, but it's certainly one of the most recognizable. So what's it been like to work for the New York Times? Working for the Times is unparalleled. Uh, I... Again, I never expected or ever planned to work for the Times. And so doing so and being a part of the operation every single day is a pleasure and a privilege and just mind-blowing in how beautiful uh, it is to still work for an operation that has such high standards and in which everybody is working together to make the best damn journalism we can. And did you have to take a step or two back in seniority? Kind of as a cost of uprooting and moving yourself to Hong Kong and getting in at such an organization? I am the junior in my team, but I don't mind because I love them and they teach me so much and it doesn't matter. Though I can probably assume with uh, what has seemed like your general approach, this is probably just another necessary step to get your foot in through the door. Absolutely. It, it has been a necessary step. And if I, if I just calm down and take a breath and don't worry about all these things that I wish people knew about me, 
I can look at all the things that I have learned that I never would have learned before, how much I have grown. I've gone through plenty of trials and difficulties and challenges since arriving here. Almost three years in, I'm feeling stable and a sense of general contentedness and ease and satisfaction. How did you find yourself in the opinion section as a staff editor, as opposed to the more journalistic and reporting type of roles that you've had before? When I connected with the New York Times, it was through mentors at uh, the University of Hong Kong. They connected me with the Times and then the Times just so happened that the connection they made was in a different part of journalism than I had ever dabbled in before. It was the opinion section. Now, the opinion section, we take firm stances. We have viewpoints. We have a clear perspective. We do have an angle. That's not something that I had ever honed before. And yet, now when I look at what I'm doing, I can see very clearly that I'm doing many things that I had always been wanting to do, but didn't fit into what I was doing before. So what would that include? It would include writing with voice rather than in a very straight, clear, somewhat formulaic for a wire service way. Do you find it tough to do all of these different things, like learning a new role in the opinion section versus the more traditional reporting you've done in the past, and then keeping an unending cycle of new original content coming in from around the world and then promoting those articles? It seems to me like that's a lot of different stuff. So, you know, one thing that I realized uh, maybe a few months in to the job I could never have been doing all these things had I not gone through all the experiences that we've talked about before. Working for the Canadian press taught me how to juggle print and web and radio and TV and how to work in multiple time zones, even if it was only time zones in Canada. I am juggling uh, a huge number of tasks every day And that is something I'm capable of because I honed those skills through everything I've been through before. So between your personal travels and this move to Hong Kong, and as you said earlier, working for different papers in Waterloo and Hamilton and working out of Vancouver, it sounds like you're comfortable with moving around for work? That's right. That's right. So, And does that just come with the territory? It did. You know, um, I... I'm in a different situation here in Asia, at least in Canada, it seemed to be that as resources were cut, there was less and less travel and more and more desk reporting. So yes, I moved around a lot and they, when there was money, they would, it's especially if the story was big enough, they would make a call. The editors always had to make a call on when was there enough money to spend to send the reporter to the place. But in my earlier years, I was roving all around and speaking to people face to face. And I still think that brings the best stories, but there's a whole nother style of reporting that is a skill to be able to write an authoritative report f- by the phone and using digital technology and never moving from your seat. But doing an interview by the phone or digitally has to make for a very different type of interview ultimately, right? For instance, I'm having this conversation with you via Skype 11 hours apart versus if I were sitting in your kitchen and we were having this conversation over the table, it's I would be shocked if they'd be the identical conversations. They just can't be. I I agree with you fully as somebody who has traveled as much as I now have and has had many long distance relationships. (laughs) People do behave differently when there is greater amount of body language and just even whether it's pheromonally or other physiological mechanisms in individuals that like 
either can or can't sync up because yeah. because you're sitting close to each other. I mean, we evolved as, you know, in small little groups of people and in tribes and our bodies do connect with each other, whether it's breathing, um, heart rate. There are many subtle physiological mechanisms at work all the time that change how people behave with each other. And I talk about this because I'm super interested in it already. And I, I kind of do my own, it's like a hobby for me to study psychology like this, but I've experienced it over and over and over again through my lifetime because I travel and because I've had so many relationships that haven't existed in the same space. With all of this communication that you undertake personally and professionally, do you consider yourself to be an empathetic person? Yes, I do. I have been honing my empathy for many years and coming to understand what it means. That also has pros and cons. Um, I believe that empathy is the key to connection and to true understanding, and that's how I can best gain authentic details and expressions from another person, that's how I can get to truth. However, when you open your heart that wide, it also means that there's a lot of emotion that I make myself vulnerable to and that can seep in that I have to be ready for, be ready to process as well. Isn't that sometimes tough in your line of work? Because like, there's so much emotional baggage you pick up from your stories, whether it's a riot in Vancouver or some human tragedy in, in Southeast Asia. You were, since you're so much closer to it in talking to people who have experienced these tragedies, how do you distance yourself from that when you want to go to sleep? <laughs> there's a lot of journal writing in my life. I do a lot of yoga. I have a very extensive wind-down routine. There have been cases where it has weighed far more heavily on me than others. In the hardest moments, I have gone to close confidants and talked to them about it. But I have a therapist who I talk to on a regular basis as well. I think that journalists who do put in place these coping strategies they do so to everybody's benefit. The best work comes when you can continue to refresh and recycle and renew yourself <laughs> and, wow. and go back to it again, ready for whatever is going to come next. So with all the personal connections, it sounds like you have to your work. What does the concept of work-life balance mean to someone in your type of position? I make it a priority to keep my phone in my locker when I go to yoga. <laughs> and that, oh, yes, it feels so good to not have that screen anywhere near me and to feel actually okay about it for one hour, you know. But um, the thing is, I love what I do, and yeah. I'm friends with not only my colleagues here, but Hong Kong is a hub for all major media in the world. So when I'm out uh, often, it is with my friends also from Agence France Presse and the Washington Post and The Economist. So that is a whole lot of work, part of the equation, even in social hours. But I also make it a point to have friends in groups that are no way, shape or form related to journalism. I take myself on lots of trips to other countries in the region. At the same time, when I go to these places and I am on the ground with people from places that we are covering. And so it, there is, there is no clear delineation. What about your relationships back in Canada as part of this work life spectrum? Is your family supportive through all this? You know what? Um, my parents are incredibly supportive, incredibly. And frankly, I do um, wrestle with not being there for them, being with them because of 
how much they give to me, how much like love and support they give to me to do me. I hope that, that my family and um, being away from them, I hope that is not one of my regrets one day. So generally speaking, uh, do you regret any decisions or would you have done anything differently when you look in hindsight? I have never, okay. Um, I, so far in life, have lived in such a way that I don't believe that I have any major regrets. I have had plenty of failures. I've made many mistakes. And every mistake I make, I debrief myself on it. And I apply my coping strategies um I've managed to feel like I came away ahead even when I screwed up um I have not ever said I shouldn't have done this even throughout all of your travels because I know from your articles that I've read from Myanmar and Thailand that it seems like you were in some pretty deep situations and again in hindsight none of these are reckless or ill-advised in your opinion can you shine a light on or maybe recount your thought process through some of those more intense types of situations when i was in thailand i wanted to go to a uh, a muay thai fight because you know that's one of the things that you do when you're in thailand it's their national sport i happened to go the night that a young man from Sweden, he was 14 years old, was having his debut in the ring. And uh, I had made friends with some young medical students from elsewhere in Europe, and they knew I was a journalist. And partway through the match, they come over to me, damn, so we've got a story for you. What's that? Well, one of the guys was pissing in the bathroom with the 14-year-old's father who tells him that uh, the reason his son is here is because he needed to give his son some tough love. So uh, I end up realizing that this is not just a match for my own entertainment. And by the way, watching kids fight other kids is not entertainment. It, 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 I, it, it's a means to an end for, the, for them um, out of poverty. But uh, as a Westerner watching it, I actually, like, it, it, it turned my stomach. However, um, that led to me then inquiring with the dad afterwards, like, why, wait a minute, why do you have your 14-year-old boy here, like, kicking and punching Thai kids in the ring? What's going on? And uh, that led to me making friends with this 500-fight pan-Asian champion his name's Pooh, which means mountain. <laughs> Pooh and I, we would um, jump on the back of his motorbike and zoom out to various jungle Muay Thai rings. He brought me to meet his friends at their shacks. And I was found myself bouncing babies on my lap and picking chicken chicken flesh off the bone and taking shots of sang song rum with them the thing is that following the story when you're on the ground and out here is so thrilling and intoxicating and that's part of what i think probably made it made made me less afraid but I still didn't know who anybody was. And so that's where the empathy comes in. But it's like, I know, I know you're experienced enough to know that what you just described for a lot of people sounds absolutely horrifying and it sounds reckless and it sounds um, irresponsible. How could you be so naive? Blah, blah, blah. In the end, I wanted to understand what was going on there. Was that reckless for me to make friends with real people and to follow them and ask them truly what was going on and try to understand some kind of phenomena that was happening? You know, in the very least, it spurs debate on many different topics. I believe that there is value in 
chasing that story and in following that story. And I will say that while it's not the sexy part and not the part that's on display, I'm always paying attention to my own safety. So I, I actually don't think that I was doing anything reckless or naive. Well, Tamsin, I, I appreciate you telling these stories that are very good, positive impacts on your life because I think it's important that they're heard. It seems like most of the time we're inundated with these stories with negative outcomes. And I know that's not indicative of the truth or the real world out there because people are nice. So Tamsin, thank you for being so nice, sitting with me for so long and from halfway across, well, all the way across the world, talking to me at great length about these super interesting experiences and uh, what you do for a living. It's, it's been great talking to you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for allowing me to share. Let me be the first to admit that I didn't know what I was getting into when I interviewed Tamsin. After a wonderful mutual connection who graciously introduced me to her, I was just stoked to hear she worked for the New York Times. However, I should have known that, as I said in the intro, one does not simply work for the New York Times. On the surface, Tamsin is a risk-taker and a goal-driven person. I think that's pretty clear. She specifically mentioned how important setting goals is for herself. But what about the risk? Words are important, so I'll be honest. I did have to Google the definition of risk, and it means the possibility or threat of loss. And the way I'm choosing to interpret what Tamsin said is that any of the risks that she's been assessed as taking by others, in her mind, haven't actually been risks. She's never put herself into a position where she could lose anything of value, because even failure for her brings tremendous value. Perspective is important, folks, and leaping into the unknown does get easier with practice. An underrated strategy, which Tamsin is a prime ambassador of, is getting into the room. I think so many people are paralyzed with thoughts of the finish line, they forget about all the steps in between. And one of these crucial steps is to surround yourself with the right people. So get yourself to the table and then start talking. Finally, a point that resonated with me and is something that I try to implement in my own life is these action lists. If your idea is unclear for where you're going, then do some things that get you closer to that cloud in front of your goal. And sooner or later, you'll see the object behind. For Tamsin, this included things like building a web-based portfolio, but even a master's degree was on that list. If you want to hear more about Tamsin's adventures, then check out the links on my website to see her articles from Myanmar, from Thailand, and from Cambodia. Or if you simply want to learn a little bit more about the world, there's links for that too. That website is howto.show. That's H-O-W-2.show. So the next time you hear from me, the subject will still be interacting with others. Except this time, the interactions are with people who directly provide your livelihood. I'll be talking about the life of a salesperson with my father, Bob Syme. Now, I know what you're thinking. And no, this isn't a cop-out. Bob is one of the most accomplished salespeople I know. And that's tough for me to say. His experience and success has both spanned industry and era. I'm sure that I can extract some insight. So get an idea about what life is like for the entrepreneurial salesperson next time on How To.